All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. As Christ said, right, that that there are times in which he would separate father from son and mother from daughter. From now on, a household of five, two will be against three and three against two. I've not come to bring peace, but the sword, division. And so it's explaining, I don't think that that's ordinary. I don't think that's always what, I think that was ordinary for Jewish Christians in first century times. And that's why Jesus said it. I don't think that that is the general pattern of households and salvation for all of Christendom, just for the record. I think that if, if, if you're in a two against three household of five situation, that is not God's ordinary design. If you were living in the first century in Israel and Jesus is coming on and preaching the gospel for the first time, that would be common. That would be a common occurrence for, and I would say even to this day, 2,000 years later, on the heels of 2,000 years of Christendom, that is actually still the common effect of the gospel being preached, coming to bear for the first time on a first generation of Christians. You see what I'm getting at? You preach the gospel in an unreached people group who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ who are steeped in paganism. And some evangelist, some missionary preaches the gospel and that's what you'll see. You'll see division. You'll see households divided against each other. But but for the West, I mean, going all the way back to King Alfred, we, we could say a thousand years of Christendom in the West. Definitely 500 for more recent Christendom. If... If you think that that it is God's ordinary common design that in churches today in 2023, in nations like America that have been saturated since its founding in Christian teaching, that it is God's design and it would be ordinary that in our church, in a church like ours, that, that three out of five people in a household would be here professing faith in Christ and attending church and in covenant membership and two would not, you're out of your mind. I entirely reject that. No. No, it is, it is, not, it is not a crapshoot when it comes to the salvation of our children. It is not. If you and your spouse are faithful, you should expect God doesn't owe it to you, and it's not 100% guarantee there are apostate passages that will be applicable throughout all this gospel age. However, they are the exception. They are not the norm. Ordinarily, you should expect, not presume, not in arrogance, but eager, humble, joyful expectation that it is the will of God that he will save you and your household. That if you have 10 children, that all 10 children will fear the Lord. That should be the expectation. Not that we're batting at 40 or 60%. Two against three, three against two. That was what Jesus was saying to the Jewish people who were prophesied of for hundreds of years not to receive him. 
He came to his own, but they received him not. He was despised, Isaiah said. That was what God had prophesied, what God had ordained to happen, that in first century Israel, they would reject the Messiah. And so Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. From now on, households will be divided, meaning some will believe in me and some won't. But that is not the, the indicative pattern for all of church history in all nations, in all places, in all times. Jesus was not, I'll say it like this, when Jesus says, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword, dividing households, some of a house, half of a household will believe and half won't. That was not a predictive, indefinite pattern for the gospel going forth for households. That was not a, a prescriptive text for all times and all places and all peoples. That was a descriptive text of what was going to happen right then and there. And that is what happened right then and there. But that is not what has happened over the course of church history. As the gospel roots deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in a nation, in a society, in a culture, and in individual families, what you see in terms of statistics and percentages is that throughout, from generation to generation to generation, you see more of the household, a higher percentage of the household being saved, not lower. So that the first generation that hears the gospel, it may be husband is saved and wife's not. Or it may be husband and wife are saved, but the children aren't. Right? Or, or three of the children aren't, and, and one is. But then with that next generation, with that one, they find a godly spouse, and now it's more of the children. By the time you get down to multiple generations, it's, it's household salvations. The whole household. And that is not, just for the record, you can affirm that, certainly as a Presbyterian, praise God, but you can also affirm that as a particular Baptist. It's called covenant succession, which apparently I'm like the only Baptist who's willing to say this, but I would like to think that Presbyterians don't have a monopoly on covenant succession. I, I really don't think that they do. In the technical theological sense, I do believe a particular Baptist, guys like Benjamin Keach, guys like Nehemiah Cox, that they can, with a 1689 covenantal view, affirm covenant succession. All those are big words. What's covenant succession? It's the expectant... Parents, um, it's, it's parents' humble expectation that their children will succeed them in the faith by virtue not of godly or faithful nature, but faithful nurture. Nurture. Break it down. Covenant succession is Christian parents expecting that their children will also be Christian by virtue of them having a covenantal, faithful, nurturing home through godly parenting. Through godly parenting. It's like, what, so... Joel, you got to be careful there because it sounds like what you're saying is that, that by virtue of our godly parenting, we can somehow work the sovereign God who is sovereign. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, hardens who he hardens, that you could work God into your debt to where he owes you by virtue of your good parenting. He now owes you the salvation of your children. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about tit for tat. I'm not talking about merit. I'm not talking about working God into our debt or what we do somehow earns what God will do. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that unconditional election is not arbitrary election. What I'm affirming is not that we can make the God of the universe owe us the salvation of our children by being really good parents. What I'm saying is that God works through means, always. 
Romans 10, 14, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will someone preach unless they're sent? For it is written, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Meaning what? How does God save? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you have a Christian household with two faithful Christian parents, those kids are going to hear Christ constantly. They're going to hear him in the home with catechism and family worship. They're going to hear them in the church because faithful Christian parents will ensure that their children are in church and not at some seeker-sensitive, watered-down, nasty mega-church, but at a really good, biblical, faithful church. And those Christian parents are going to bring their kids in a church where they're going to have to listen not just to the, the you know drawing and coloring the papers in the, in the Sunday school children's class, but they're going to have to sit in an uncomfortable chair and listen to me talk forever forever. And a lot of it's going to go over their heads, but they're also going to get some stuff. Your five-year-old knows the Apostles' Creed better than you do, parent. How do I know that? Because mine does. And that's without even teaching it at home. We're doing the Apostles' Creed. We do family worship every day. We do the Apostles' Creed maybe once a week, though, as a part of our family worship in the home. My, my daughter, Olive, my eldest, she has predominantly learned and memorized the Apostles' Creed, not at home, but simply on, on the Lord's Day in the corporate assembly. And she knows it better than I do. And I lead people in saying the Apostles' Creed. And I still have to look down just to make sure that I don't say this before that. Uh, and, and in our family worship, when we do recite the Apostles' Creed, uh, as my wife is my witness, all of is constantly correcting us. We'll say, you know, and the communion of the saints. And she'll, uh-uh, uh-uh, that doesn't come first. You know, and, like, and, she'll, and she'll teach us the Apostles' Creed because she's hearing it again and again and again. She is in a context, both in the home and in the church, by virtue of her mother and father's faithfulness to Christ, which comes by grace and grace alone, all glory be to God. But by virtue of that, our our children are, are submersed in a context of hearing Christ. And, and can I then make an equation, some kind of formula that says if someone hears enough of the gospel, they therefore are guaranteed to believe the gospel, receive it, and be saved? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. We can get a, a pretty good idea, not, not work God into our debt, not uh, do something into which he now owes us, but we can discern and get a pretty good clue, a pretty good idea of what God has sovereignly decided by looking at what God in his sovereignty is causing us to do right now. Like I can get a pretty good idea of not perfectly, but I can get a pretty good idea of what God might be, uh, might have determined to do in the future by seeing what God in his grace and by his spirit is causing me to do in the present. In the present. Right? Because it's the same sovereignty. So, so God who is sovereign over the ends of salvation, who he saves and who he doesn't, is also sovereign over the means of salvation. Who's preaching the gospel? Who's hearing that gospel? What kind of parents you have? What school? you God's sovereign over all of it. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to look at the doctrine of unconditional election and interpret that in a one-to-one ratio as arbitrary election and say, you know what? There's really no rhyme or reason to who God saves. Yes, there is. Like, is it a coincidence that God didn't save anyone in Japan until the 13th century? Well, he's sovereign over salvation. Okay, then how come he saved no one in a whole country until the 13th century? Because the means of grace and the ends of grace are never severed. That's why. 
And the means of grace when it comes to hearing the gospel and believing and being saved is preaching the gospel. And no one under the banner of God's sovereignty was sent to preach the gospel in Japan until the 13th century. And therefore, no one was saved. It is that simple. It is that simple. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment, and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. This is undoubtedly the best way that you can help us get this biblically faithful content to as many people as possible. Thanks so much.